Daniel chapter 4. Matthew was true to his word. When he told Chris and I we're going to preach through, uh, Matthew, uh, through Daniel, we said, you better sign us up before we get to chapter 7. <laughs> because then it gets interesting. And so here we are in Daniel chapter 4. This is the last account that we will see in the book of Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. And we've gotten to know King Nebuchadnezzar through the first three books of Daniel. He's a real gem. We've gotten to know him as a ruthless and violent and self-exalting king who besieged Jerusalem and who took all the gold and the silver from the house of God and brought it and put it in his own temple. And we saw him capturing young men to come serve in his palace. Daniel and his three friends were part of those young men. We also saw him willing to kill all his wise men for the great reason of them not being able to tell him what his dream was. Imagine that. Tell me your dream, my dream, or I'll kill you. And we saw him last week erecting a statue of gold and forcing, requiring everyone to fall down and worship that statue. And we saw Daniel and his friends not being willing to do that because they could bow before no one else than the real, true God. And he tossed them in a fiery furnace. And we saw how God helped them and sustained them that they, nothing happened to them. They did not even smell of fire. So we've seen so far King Nebuchadnezzar as a violent and prideful, self-loving self-exalting dictator with no qualms at all about killing people and wanting to be worshipped as God himself. So it's shocking. It's shocking when we turn the page and we get to Daniel chapter 4 and we start reading it and all of a sudden what we see is this king that we've gotten to know as violent, evil king honoring the Lord. Worshipping the God of heaven. And there's obviously something great that happened. And as we heard this morning, and as we look at this day, we see that sure, something big happened between him being an evil king, setting himself up to be worshipped, to today being at a place where he starts off by worshipping God, the God of heaven and earth. It's also interesting, this chapter is written a little bit like an epistle. Remember, if you think of Paul's letters, he, he would start Ephesians 1 by saying this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. He says who he is and who he's talking about. He says the same to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle through Jesus Christ to the churches of Galatia. Look at Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. He says who he is and who he's speaking to. 
What's interesting, though, is that these nations and peoples and languages that he is addressing here, these are the same people that previously he called to bow down and fall down before his own image to worship the golden image. Now he is calling them to tell them about what God has done for him. And so starting in verse 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar telling us the story of what has happened to him, giving us a testimony of sorts of what God has done for him. He says he was comfortable and prospering in his palace, in his home, and then he had this frightening dream. I didn't think anything could frighten this man. But this dream frightened him. He saw this high tree, this beautiful high tree growing and growing and touching heaven. And he saw that it was visible from all earth. And this tree had beautiful leaves and had lots of fruit. It gave food to everybody and the beasts of the field took shelter under it and the birds of the, field, of the air lived in it. And obviously up to this point, there's nothing that should have frightened him by this dream. But then the dream goes on and he saw a watcher a holy one that came down from heaven to proclaim, chop down this tree. Strip it of its branches, scatter its leaves and its fruit. Let the beasts and the birds flee from it, leaving only the stump bound with a band of bronze and iron. And then there's something interesting that happens. There's a change of tone. I, didn't, I don't know if you picked up on it when Charlene read it changes from using the word it to using the word him in verse 15. It changes from it, the tree, to him, the man. And it says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the, feet of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This scared Nebuchadnezzar. And after his own counsel could not interpret the dream, and they were brave to tell him that because the last time he wanted to kill them all for saying that. But when they could not interpret it, he called Daniel, of course, and Daniel interpreted for him, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, this this tree that you see, this is you. This is your kingdom. Your kingdom has grown. It has become mighty and strong and it has reached the heaven. Your greatness has grown and your dominion reaches the ends of the earth. But this is the decree of the Lord, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Most High. You are going to lose your might. Be driven from your people. You are going to lose all and live like a beast of the field, having the mind of a beast, and eat grass. For seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. On a side note, seven periods of time. We wonder how long is seven periods of time? So if you read more newer scholars, people are saying seven years, but really seven periods of time denotes a perfect amount of time. So what this says is, as long as it takes, 
You will eat grass as long as it takes until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. It's a perfect time, seven periods of time. But then Daniel did something extremely bold and extremely loving, and he exhorted King Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. King Nebuchadnezzar, if you want to continue to live at peace and prosper in your palace, then break off your sin and start practicing righteousness. And so this is the point where we think, okay, we're going to see a change now. We're going to see Nebuchadnezzar. He's received the dream. He's received the interpretation. And he's received an exhortation. And now we're going to see him realizing that he needs to follow the Most High, the God of heaven and earth. Of course, this is not the case. And as we pick the story back up in verse 29, we see what happens 12 months later, one year later after he had this dream and Daniel interpreted for him. He says he was walking on the roof of his palace in Babylon. And what did he do? Is not this great Babylon which I built by my mighty power? as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And so obviously in in just 12 months, he had forgotten the dream, he had forgotten the interpretation, he had forgotten the exhortation from Daniel. And once again, like we've seen before, he exalts himself, he exalts his own might, and he glorifies his own work. And while Nebuchadnezzar were saying these words, the dream was fulfilled. And he was driven from among men, and he lived like a beast of the field, having the mind of a beast, eating grass, his hair growing as long as the feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth at that time, who conquered kingdoms, who had unmeasured wealth and unrivaled power, who did as he pleased, who had everyone bow down before his statue and worship him, who was a god in his own mind, was instantly humbled by God Most High. This in itself is is a mighty story. Just to hear how God is able to take this man who has rule over everyone and everything and does whatever he wants and in an instant, God humbles him because he is powerful and mighty. He is God. But you know, in the next verse, church, we see something really amazing. In the next verse, we see the grace of our God at work in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. Because the next thing we read is that Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and his reason was restored to him and he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. 
That's just amazing to see that the once mighty king who exalted himself, who set himself up, who wanted to be worshipped, now humbles himself before the King Most High, praising and extolling and honoring the King of Heaven. And what we see here is that God in His kindness allowed this pride and arrogant and selfish king who set himself up against God. God allowed him to see who God really is. He allowed him to see who the King of Heaven is. He allowed him to see that he was not the ultimate authority and king, but that there was one higher, the King of Heaven. And not only that, but he restored to Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom. And then we see that even after being restored to his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself before the Most High and he worshipped him. What a story. What a powerful account of what God can do. And although there are so many things in this chapter, I, I thought for a moment maybe I can do what Matthew did in Ephesians. Remember when one time he took one passage and he said, no, I'm going to divide this up in three weeks. I thought maybe we should do this. We'll divide this up because there's just so much. But as I prayed and I asked the Lord, I feel that there are, that there are several things that God wants to show us as a church. God, friends, he showed himself, he reveals himself to us in very unique ways in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And I want us to look at some of those. The first of those is that God shows himself as a sovereign ruler. We've already seen this three times in this passage. You've heard it when Charlene read it in verses 17, 25, and 32. You, you heard these words. The Most High rules the kingdom of men. The Most High rules the kingdom of men. The Most High rules the kingdom of men. It is an amazing statement. It says that God Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men, over the affairs of men. King Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man with a powerful rule. He, his kingdom was mighty and vast and he was feared by everybody. But he was not ultimately in control of his own kingdom. God Most High was ultimately in charge, in control of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And there is no man, and there is no rule, and there is no kingdom that is outside God's sovereign control and rule. That is good news, church. These words, the Most High rules the kingdom of men, should be exceedingly comfortable words to everyone who this last week has laid awake at night wondering, nine days from today, who on earth am I going to vote for and what's going to become of our country in a few months? The Most High rules over the kingdom of men. 
And I hope that these words can comfort you when you turn on the television and you hear what you don't want to hear or you hear friends say things about one of the two candidates that you don't agree with or you're just, just so concerned about what is going to happen with our country after this election. May these words put your troubled and concerned heart at rest and at peace. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and He gives it to whom He will. There will be no future president of the United States of America that is not instituted by the rule of God. Period. And so Romans 13 verse 1 makes it clear. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All right, so now, forward a month or two, and there's a new president. What if that new president is not the person that you are voting for or that you don't like? How do we respond to that? This is the time that we keep entrusting ourselves to a faithful God by being subject to the authority of that president who was instituted by the rule of God, but by remaining faithful to our God. You know, as we look at Daniel and his friends throughout the book of Daniel, even so far and even more as we're going to continue, we see that exact thing play out. Daniel and his friends worked in, served under an evil man, Nebuchadnezzar. But as long as they were there, they were, they were subject to his authority. They did not rebel against him. They were subject to his authority, but they remained true to their God. And God sustained them. He cared for them. He protected them and He promoted them in that rule. And so my, my encouragement this morning, church, is remember that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And as we launch into this election, it's something that is on everybody's mind and many people are concerned of this. May we find comfort in knowing God rules the kingdom of the United States of America. You know, brother and sister, God not only is sovereign over kingdoms and presidencies and elections, He's also sovereign over every aspect of your life and my life. It means He rules supreme over your life and my life. Not because He wants to control us, but because He loves us. God cares deeply about His children. He does not want our lives to be lived for ourselves. He does not want us to be caught up in earthly pleasures. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to enjoy Him. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to rest in Him. 
And as he did with King Nebuchadnezzar, he will sovereignly ordain all the facets of our lives, not to control us, but to give us the chance that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar to get to that place where he says, Oh, I see the Most High rules, and I don't. There are some people who dislike or question God's sovereignty. They say, if God is sovereign, that makes me a puppet. It's not the truth, church. May God help you if you feel that way, to see that His sovereignty is grace for us. It is beautiful. It is the Father's way of helping His children enjoy a close and passionate and intimate relationship with Him. His sovereignty proves His ultimate love for us. He does not control us. He sovereignly cares for us in deep and meaningful ways. Think about it this way. Think if you are walking through the valley of death, whether that be in terms of sickness or financial ruin or relational pain. Think of if you, if you are over here and you do not believe in God's sovereignty. It means that where you find yourself today was your fault. and You got yourself into this, so get yourself out of this. Good luck. But if we believe, if we believe God's sovereignty, then we can know that wherever I find myself today, in whatever pleasant or unpleasant circumstance I find myself today, this is God who brought me here for a good purpose and God will sustain me right here. As long as He has me here, He will care for me right here. What grace! What grace that it's not me that I have to get myself out of whatever situation but that God will do it because He is in charge. Church, remember that God is good. And wherever you find yourself today and in whatever difficult circumstance, it is, you are there because He is good and He is good to you. It may not be easy where you are. It wasn't for King Nebuchadnezzar when he lived like a beast. But it is for our God You know why it is good? Because there's a purpose behind it. There's a purpose that a loving, sovereign God purposed. And that purpose will come to fruition in your life. And God will show Himself to us. Do not let the difficulties, the sufferings of this world, church, rob you of the knowledge that there's a sovereign, mighty, powerful, holy, loving God who directs your life and He loves you very much. The second thing we see how God reveals Himself in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it links closely with God being sovereign, is that God is a pursuer This suffering that God brought on to Nebuchadnezzar was not to destroy him. 
It was to reveal to him who God is. It was to reveal to him that there is a Most High in heaven that is worthy of his, King Nebuchadnezzar's, worship and praise and honor. This suffering was not simply to humiliate them. It was not just to show God's power. But the reason for this severe action that took place in Nebuchadnezzar's life had a redemptive nature. It had a redemptive nature. God pursued Nebuchadnezzar because he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know him. This is mind-blowing. God wanted this evil king to worship him, to love him, to, to, to enjoy him, to have a reconciled relationship with him. And so he pursued him for years and years and years. He pursued Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that we've read in the first three chapters and this fourth chapter, we see God pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. He gave Nebuchadnezzar specific dreams, very specific dreams, warning him about the, the perils of exalting himself and not God. He gave him Daniel to interpret those dreams. He showed him, God showed Nebuchadnezzar his amazing power as he sustained Daniel and his friends when they didn't want to eat the king's food and when they were thrown in a fiery furnace and nothing happened to them. He showed it to him. These were ways that he pursued Nebuchadnezzar, showing him his awesome power and might. He spoke directly to him through Daniel's exhortation, telling him to break off his sin and practice righteousness. You know that from the first dream, the dream when he dreamed about the statue with the head of gold and all the way down to this dream of the tree, it's, about, it's a little over 30 years. 30 years that God pursued him, and even more than that, that God pursued this king, showing him dreams and visions, giving him these young men to be around him, to remind him of who God is. And time and again, the king heard it, and time and again, he resisted it. And so God acted in this seemingly severe way until he knew that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. But here's what we need to understand. This was not judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. This was a loving, gracious, kind act to Nebuchadnezzar. If, if God judged Nebuchadnezzar, he could have done two things. He could have just killed him right away, or he could have allowed him to worship himself as God until he died. And then he would have, in eternity, be separate from God. That would have been judgment. What we see here, even, even though this looks harsh, letting him live like a beast, is God's grace to this man because this is the way God knew he could bring Nebuchadnezzar to the place where he looks up and he says, God rules. It's grace to him. Do you realize that God is pursuing each one of us this morning, church? He really is. 
He's pursuing you because He cares for you. He created you and He desires to have relationship with you. He wants you to enjoy Him. He wants you to be at peace with Him. He cares for you like a father cares for their children, desiring for them to have relationship with one another. And if you take some time and you think through your life, you will see that your story has been ordained by God as He has been pursuing you over many years because He continues to do that for us because He wants to continue to reveal Himself to us. And so there are times of joy and celebration and victory in our lives and there are times of misery and hardship and suffering in our lives and all those God used to reveal Himself to us. And as I prepared this, I thought of how God revealed Himself to me and our family. And very quickly I realized how God has used some things in my life that I could never plan for me. I just realized how 20 years ago, it's a long time ago, 20 years ago I was in still working in South Africa, and I was promised a promotion in, uh, at my work. And when that position was filled, it wasn't filled with me. And it was, I was broken because of that. I wasn't so much broken because I desired that high position. I was broken because it would have meant a financial increase for me And at that time, my salary really was too little to sustain us as a family. And it was hard to me, but even in that time, we could see, and I have story after story about how God sustained us and how He supernaturally provided for us. Several years later, we were on vacation, and after the first night, they broke into our camper and stole a lot of stuff. Two days later, my director calls and cancels my vacation and says, come back. And when we came back, he said, I want you to go to Virginia in the United States, go to Quantico, to the FBI uh, International Forensic Meeting. And so it was bittersweet, sweet for me, bitter for my family. But I came, and I didn't ever know the purpose of that forward about a year later when I was now looking for work on the internet, just looking for jobs, forensic jobs in America. When I saw a position and when I read through the position at the end, I saw a name of the person to contact for this position. And who else would it be than the woman I met in Quantico a year earlier? If I had gotten the promotion years before, I probably would not have been looking for work in the United States. If God did not ordain for me to come here, I would not have met this lady who I now had a contact with. In 300 million people in America, I knew about two. She was one of them. (laughs) And so God ordained that, and and, and obviously I, I... applied for the position, I got the position, and we moved to the United States forward five more years that we were seeking 
God, but we were struggling spiritually, and God supernaturally really connected us to Kingsway. At that time, there was no 288, so we live in the West End. It felt like six years away. (laughs) But here, where God brought us to this church, this building, those seats, through broken leaders and through imperfect people, God revealed himself to us in this church. And it started 20 years ago when I did not get a promotion at my job. And that day, I remember the day I did not get, I I truly remember the day I did not get that job. And I wrote on my desk calendar, I wrote, now what? (laughs) And I can imagine God looking down at me and go like, oh, you have no idea. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to ordain your life. I'm going to pursue you and ordain your life so that 20, 15 years later, I'm going to use a church in Richmond and Midlothian, Virginia. I'm going to reveal myself to you. Our story does not stop there. There are still joyful experiences in our life. There are still very hard things in our life. And we constantly have to trust God, constantly knowing that this, what He is doing, is His pursuit of me because He continues to want to reveal more of Himself to me. So the joys and the not-so-joys God is using for my good. Your story is different. Your story is different, but it is the same. You may be in a season of joy or a season of suffering or a season of grief, but know this, that in all these seasons, God is pursuing you and His plans for you are good to help you see Him as glorious and as loving and as an amazing God and so that you can grow in your relationship with Him and worship Him and be satisfied in Him. So no matter where you find yourself today, know that it is because God is pursuing you that you are right there where you are today. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing relationship with you. He wants to reveal more of Himself to you. His pursuit is consistent and His pursuit is redemptive and His pursuit is loving. The reason He does that is because He wants our hearts, church. In Exodus 20, we read that God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Skip a little bit. You shall not bow down to serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Why did God do this to Nebuchadnezzar? Why did he pursue him this way? 
Why did he pursue me this way? Why does he pursue you this way? The answer is that God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge him and to know him as the most high God. He wanted the king's loyalty. He wanted the king's devotion. He wanted the king's worship. He wanted the king's heart. And that's what he wants from each one of us. Last week, Matthew, Matthew's message included something extremely meaningful. First, he asked the question, he asked, would you think me arrogant if I told you that right now I know the single greatest struggle in your life today? And not only today, but tomorrow and this week and this month and every day until you die. Remember that if you were here. And then he said this, he said, I'm convinced that the greatest single struggle that you and I face today and every day of our lives is this, who or what are you going to worship? We're always ascribing worth or value to something or someone as that which would satisfy our thirst for glory, significance, meaning, and security. And we never stop doing this. Nebuchadnezzar tried to satisfy his thirst for glory, significance, meaning, and security by conquering nations, by exerting his power over people, by building statues and having people worship him. He pursued his satisfaction by his own might, his own power, and his own ascribed deity. And we see this as extreme. Wow, I'll never do that. But do you realize, church, that what he did is no more serious than the myriad of ways that you and I seek daily to satisfy our thirst for glory, significance, meaning, and security. Through materialism, through pride, through self-gratification, through comfort, and through feeling deserving of more and more and more and more. And what King Nebuchadnezzar did in his attempt to satisfy his thirst for glory and significance and meaning and security is no different than what you and I on a daily basis do in our thirst for those things. Because at the very core of that sin is who do we worship? What do we worship? God wants your heart. He is supremely and singularly worthy of our love and affection and our worship. We shall have no other gods before Him. You may be a Christian here this morning and you may think, well, God has my heart. I'm a Christian. But friends, realize that as long as there are ways in which we try to satisfy our thirst for glory and significance and meaning and security, other than total devotion to God, satisfaction in God and love for God, as long as there are areas in my life that I claim as mine that really is untouchable, God does not have our heart and our devotion. He's a jealous God, remember. He's a jealous God who does not ask for some, 
of our heart, some of our love, some of our affection, and some of our worship. He wants all of us. He is deserving of all of that. And if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you this morning the best news you have ever heard. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, came to this earth in the form of a man. He came in the form of a man so that you may have eternal life. See, Jesus had this very specific purpose when he, when he came. He came to restore man to God. There, there was, a, there was a, a chasm between man and God because God is holy without sin and perfect. And man by nature is not. We are sinful. And really our punishment is to die. But Jesus came and as a man willingly he went to a cross and he took upon him our sin and he died our death so that we do not have to die that death. No man has ever paid a higher price for the life of another. So if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to acknowledge that you're a sinner, to repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you, to start living for him. I know this sounds vague. How do I live for God? That's what church is for. We help one another figure out how we live for God. I encourage you this morning, lift your eyes to heaven like Nebuchadnezzar and bless the Most High and praise and honor Him who lives forever. And if you repent of your sins, God is a faithful God. He will forgive you your sins. He will forgive you and he will inherit eternal life. God is worthy, church. He is worthy for me to submit my entire life to. He is worthy to live for every day of my life. He is worthy to trust when I'm at a place that I really don't like or feel comfortable in. He's worthy of our complete devotion in our hearts. If you're not living for God because you are not a Christian or because you have grown cold in your affection to God, I want to encourage you, lift your eyes to heaven. Lift your eyes to heaven and bless the Most High and praise and honor Him who lives forever and trust Him to be faithful to you. And one day you will see Jesus face to face. What a joy it will be. I'm ending with this in verse 2, verse 2 of Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar said this. He said, It seems good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High has done for me. He's saying, listen up for my testimony. I'm going to tell you what God did for me. Here's what God did for him. God pursued him relentlessly, sovereignly ordaining his life for years, bringing him to that place where he realized God is king.
and I am not. That is what God did for Nebuchadnezzar. That is what he testifies about in chapter 4. And my prayer for you this morning and for myself, church, is that God will do the same for each one of us. That He will continue to pursue us, sovereignly ordaining our lives so that we day to day can come at a place and realize, I am not the king of my life. He is, and He is worthy of all of me. So how can I submit myself to Him? May He do that for us. That would be a gracious thing. Amen. Amen.